navy imbued with wondrous capabilities. Welcome to Now Playing's In the Name of the King retrospective series. Our kingdom, our very existence is threatened from without. You have been brought here as the prophecy has decreed. Part of Now Playing's video game movie review series. Why do the gods fail me? Why? Hosted by Arnie. He was loved by all. Until? Until the Dark Ones rose. Justin. He's not known for his hasty opinions. And Stuart. He must be the warrior they all talk about. This podcast may contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. You're very, very naughty. <laughs> Listener discretion is advised. All right, let's get to it. Today, we're discussing In the Name of the King, a Dungeon Siege Tale. Starring Jason Statham, Lily Sobieski, Ron Perlman, John Rise Davies, Claire Frulani, Matthew Lillard, Kristana <laughs> <laughs> Loken, Will Sanderson, Tanya Saldner, Brian J. White, with Ray Liotta, and... Burt Reynolds? <laughs> I mean, where's Urkel? I want Urkel. What was Urkel doing? Who's more out of place here, Lillard or Reynolds? We'll discuss. <laughs> Directed by Uva Bowl. Mm. This is the Now Playing Podcast host who feels like he's trapped in a dungeon, Uva Bowl's dungeon, Arnie. And Stuart. And this is Justin. I'm just here to figure out what these actors did or what type of bet they lost to end up in an Uva Bowl movie like this. They got paid. It's worth asking. Has the problem been all along that they didn't have enough budget? House of the Dead, they had to make do with $12 million. Postal cost $15 million. And Alone in the Dark, $20 million. That maybe just Uva's vision requires <laughs> more. This movie is going to cost $60 million dollars i don't know why it looks like a hollywood squares rap party at medieval times but it cost that and just for the record it made 13 million <laughs> internationally like it made under five here in the states break evens 120 million on a 60 million budget let's start with the property itself dungeon siege Gauntlet, yes. Valkyrie needs food badly. Dragon's Lair, Adventure even. There are dungeon crawl games that I know and love. When did this come? In 2002, I was at the peak of my game infatuation. I was running the Review Games website. I went to the Game Developers Conference, which this year sounds like it may be canceled for Corona. So I'm stuck here getting Ebola instead. But <laughs> Well done, sir. One of the big games that I played a lot with my friends was Diablo, which is, you know, a dungeon crawl game where you pick your character class. You mentioned Gauntlet, and I guess Gauntlet could be seen as kind of the root for all of this. You go into a dungeon, you hack, you slash, you heal yourself. I mean, they get far more complicated than Gauntlet and Warrior needs food, but it's all basically that. I mean, it all comes from role-playing games, right? It's all Dungeons and Dragons as translated to computer and video games and... I mean, that's what a dungeon crawler is. Except when I played Final Fantasy, 
that felt like Dungeons and Dragons literally because it was turn-based combat. You're okay. like, I cast this spell. Yeah, yeah. In the dungeon crawl games, it's hack and slash. And not all of them are medieval. My favorite dungeon crawl game of all time is Marvel Ultimate Alliance. Now, I'm a Marvel zombie, I'll admit, but take Marvel out of that game. It could be South Park Ultimate Alliance. That's a fun game, okay? It is a wonderful game, but it's the same thing. You're just going through, and there's hordes of enemies, and you're just mashing buttons and using spells and things to take them down. Dungeon Siege is one of those. I remember it coming out. I didn't buy it at the time. I was aware of it. It was a fairly new development company, gas-powered games. I'd read interviews with them because I read every single interview with game developers that I could get my hands on to get insight into what I wanted to be my career. And, you know, when it came out, I read the reviews. I went back and I checked the reviews, and everybody's like, it's good. Yeah, Diablo sounds like the gold standard, and this was one of those that maybe had one or two nuanced differences from that, Was but was more or less a ripoff, is that fair to call it? It's in the same genre. I hate to use the word ripoff because there's a lot of games like Diablo. Diablo was not the first, nor the last, but yes, it may be the best, and once you create a huge game like that, there's a lot of hangers on. I mean... Once you have Doom and Quake, you're going to get a lot of redneck rampages and hexens, you know what I'm saying? So Yeah, you're chasing after the money, because obviously a game that popular, yeah, even if you get a third of that. And I think this was a modest hit, but again, a $60 million movie, maybe $60 million were inflating that. That's not a lot of money compared to Peter Jackson, Lord of the Rings. I mean, he would have a lot more than that for an installment of that, but it's a lot of money to throw at a proper nobody has that much feeling about yeah i mean with games like this the minute i see a menu where i'm managing my inventory i'm out you know i just i don't play those type of games that was one of the big things in this game that they tried to take away from diablo they all love diablo but said there was too much inventory management so in this game you get a pack mule so you can just have a huge inventory of stuff but i did play this game for the first time as a lead up to this review If our listeners are familiar with Steam, it's a platform kind of like iTunes for games, and they have virtually every game on there. Here's the trick with Steam, and this pissed me off. I didn't realize it until buying a 2002 game that was made for Windows XP or maybe even Windows ME and trying to play it on my Windows 10 machine. Steam will happily sell you the game. They don't promise it's going to work. And so I spent about two to three hours reading online tutorials and installing frame rate limiter software and all this shit just to get the game to play. And then when I finally got to play, I'm like, yeah, it's fun. It's fine. You know, I played through a few hours of gameplay, probably a little bit longer playing the game than I spent trying to get the game to work. And It's perfectly acceptable. You know, it would be much more fun to play with friends where you can do that online. You could have a team where the three of us could be on there. And what it did that's very interesting is your character in Diablo. You're like, I'm going to play a wizard or I'm going to play a fighter. Mm -hmm. This you start off as a farmer. I was just about to say, are you a turnip farmer? Okay, so you are. (laughs) The farmer has no name because it's whatever you choose to name your character. Okay. And 
as you play, you pick what class of character you are based on your actions. So if you fight more with swords, you become a fighter. If you start using spells, you become a magic user and that kind of thing. I did watch some stuff online, too. I watched all the cutscenes because I didn't have time to beat the game, but I got to watch all the cutscenes to see the story of the game. It's almost not there. There's almost not a story. It's just these things siege the town, and you have to go and fight them and go underground and try to get a scepter from some goblins and then go and fight the bad guy. It's like Diablo had a lot of atmosphere. It didn't have a lot of plot either, but man, when you played Diablo 2 and 3, I felt like I was in this medieval world with realistic non-player characters and just immersed me. This, I don't feel, ever got there. Now, I didn't play 2 or 3. I did read that 2 was somewhat problematic. 3 was not very good because it was actually made for both Windows and Xbox and PlayStation. And so the game mechanics were totally different and not very good because of that. But that's all you have. I mean, again, much like with King of Fighters, I'm like, why Dungeon Siege? There were only two games out by the time this was done. Well, we all know how Uwe Boll works, and people come to him, and he's like, sure, I'll I'll make whatever into it, and I'll exploit all the people while I'm doing it, and lose money, and make money personally. I mean, yeah, he's a con artist that calls himself a filmmaker, and I had the fortune of not only watching the long cut of this movie, but also seeing it again with the director's commentary. And what he talked about with the trouble he had about adapting this game was it's a top-down perspective. You're never very close to the characters. Like, it's for the creative screenwriter to suddenly fill in a whole lot of blanks. And we all know at this point that Bowl is not detail-oriented. He is not going to spend the time to develop character and create this kingdom of Ebb. I was amused because the way the Dungeon Siege game starts is you're a farmer and you're out on your farm... And up comes old Norik, who in this movie is played by Ron Perlman. And Norik is telling you, oh, we're under attack, and then just dies right there. And now he's telling you, go to the castle and help save the kingdom. And I'm like, well, you know, you brought in Norik and you brought in the kingdom of Ebb. I also want to point out, Dungeon Siege 2 isn't even the kingdom of Ebb. It's just, like, completely unrelated except for gameplay, and I think Dungeon Siege 3 does the same thing. So here, this movie, and I'm assuming the sequels I haven't seen yet, are all really based in the world of Dungeon Siege 1. Okay, and so, obviously, we keep talking about a video game, but we all know what Ball was really chasing here. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, that had just won all the Oscars, and the feeling was that fantasy was viable in a way that had never had been on film before. And yeah, if you throw a little money at it, you can really get a whole lot of money back. Part of the reason why they were spending $60 million on this was they thought that this was going to be two films. He thought that he was actually going to break it into two and tell it episodically. And normally, you know, when you're doing that, you write that into the script, right? You're like, okay, and this is where the break's going to happen. No, they just filmed a bunch of shit. And then in the editing room, they actually said, you know, we don't have a cliffhanger that separates one from two. We'll just make two different cuts. So there will be a theatrical cut, which is just at the fleet two hour and seven minutes 
Or when you finally get it on DVD, you can hang in tight for the two-hour, 42-minute, 35-minute longer uncut director's vision, as it were. And that is what I sat through twice. I don't know what you guys did. Whew. I don't know if I could handle another 35 minutes of this on celluloid. I sat through the regular over two-hour version. Yeah, it's still too long. But the strange thing is, I wasn't going to watch it a third time to compare the theatrical to the uncut. There are sites on the web that will do that for me. As you can imagine, mostly it was just elongated scenes. There are no subplots removed. There are nothing about the shorter version that you aren't going to get just longer in that nearly three-hour cut. So you're just seeing it go on long, but there's maybe one or two details I can bring up as we go through this plot. But more or less, the shortest experience in a Uva Bowl film is the best experience. I think we all know that by this point. I couldn't find this digitally, and so I picked up the In the Name of the King three-movie Blu-ray sets that had all the bonus features and everything, and I only had that cut to watch and it was the two hour 40 minute one and i was wondering if some of the subplots and things were cut out of the other one you're telling me no it's pretty much the same but just more of it yeah that seems to be the case there are you know maybe a dozen brand new scenes but for the most part it's every scene that goes on three or four minutes longer in this uncut and you know what for all uncut i didn't see any boobies i didn't see any blood it's all pg-13 and yeah i don't feel like you get anything more out of the longer cut except 42 minutes robbed out of your life that you know already what are you doing you're watching uva bowl <laughs> they do call it the unrated director's cut and i didn't see what would be unreal there was like a couple of scenes of blood very minor blood i'm like is that extended i didn't know yeah one of my favorite things because i had to watch all the features i drew that straw but the behind the scenes diary is really good because it's just raw video with no sound they couldn't even afford to like mic people you're just watching the actors mill around on the set in vancouver And I kid you not, the actress that's playing Solana, Jason Statham's wife, at one point she's holding a script and you can see her very clearly mouthing the words, this doesn't make sense. (laughs) And she's standing next to Balian, who we've seen, he's in all Uwe Boll's movies. He's the uncle character that was the star of House of the Dead. And he's just kind of staring off in the distance as she's ranting and ranting, just thinking, chick, there's nothing you can tell me. I came from House of the Dead. (laughs) I was a little disappointed when I read this cast list that there was no Udo Kier and there is no Clint Howard. Mm. I also got to listen to the director's commentary, which is just trolling. It's just straight up Uva Bowl. I kid you not. We hear him bringing his dogs in from outside and playing with his dog. <laughs> he answers two cell phone calls from his agent about his next film, Far Cry. And he leaves for 30 minutes and comes back eating a slice of cake, quote, to survive. <laughs> I need to survive. I have to eat cake. You know, obviously the man knew that there was nothing to say artistically about this film. And so we have to do the hard work that uh, he was unwilling and talk about this plot. Jason Statham plays a man known only as Farmer. He lives peacefully in the kingdom of Ebb with his wife Solana and their son Zeph. One day the kingdom is invaded by the supernatural Krug. 
the Beast kills Zeph and takes Alanya hostage. King Conried, played by Burt Reynolds. Oh, I love it. My favorite person <laughs> in the whole movie. I thought he could never look worse than striptease. I was wrong. <laughs> but so good. King Conried asks his citizens to join the army to battle the Krug, but Farmer goes to rescue his wife, accompanied by his brother-in-law Bastion and his old friend Norik, played by Ron Perlman. The king's magus, or magic user, is Merrick, played by John Rhys Davies. He suspects foul play and stays at the castle to investigate. Sure enough, it's evil magus, Galleon, played by Ray Liotta, because every medieval piece of film needs a gangster. <laughs> yeah. And he does the Ray Liotta laugh like every scene. I just love it. It looks like he's still in Goodfellas. But yeah, wearing this shit. Puffy sleeves and all. It's great. <laughs> Evil Megas Galleon is masterminding the Krug attacks. He's seduced Merrick's daughter Morelia, played by Lily Sobieski, and from their sex he was able to steal some of Merrick's magic. Galleon is conspiring with the king's spoiled nephew Duke Fallow, played by Matthew Lillard, who wants the throne for himself. This sounds like we're playing Mad Libs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just so, so depressed that Freddie Prinze never shows up. Maybe the sequel. Mm. <laughs> Galleon poisons the king and Fallow is blamed, so the duke takes an army legion, tells them the king is betrayed, and tries to take over. But Merrick cures the king, and upon seeing their lord alive, Fallow's troops abandon him. Farmer tries to save his wife, but Norik is killed and Bastion is captured, and Farmer is rescued by Merrick, who knows a secret. Farmer is really named Camden Conrad, the king's lost son. When Fallow succeeds in murdering the king with an arrow to the chest, the duke believes he's next in line for the throne until Farmer's direct lineage is revealed and Fallow is killed by the king's guard for his treachery. But Galleon is still out there with his crew planning more attacks, so King Farmer leads an army to attack aided by Merrick and his daughter Morelia, whose own magic powers have grown. Merrick fights Galleon and is killed. Then Farmer tries to kill the evil wizard, but Farmer's sword is no match for Galleon's magic, until Morella sneaks up behind Galleon and stabs him in the back, killing him. Without Galleon controlling them, the crew retreat. The kingdom is saved. Farmer is reunited with his wife and rules over Ebb as their kind king, and credits roll. I wish I could see, of all the behind-the-scenes footage, Uva Bowl pitching actors. Can you imagine him like, you're going to be playing orphan named Boy, and you grow up to play Farmer named Farmer. Do you want to do it or not? <laughs> and believe it or not, Jason Statham was not his first choice. He said neither one of them really wanted to do it, but when Jason realized he could do some martial arts, he came aboard. His number one choice was Kevin Costner. And he was very mad that they couldn't close a deal with Robin Hood because, quote, Kevin would only do it for the money. He wouldn't really be behind it. Oh, for the art of it. Yeah, you mean he won't repeat the mistake of the 1991 Robin Hood Prince of Thieves to his credit. That movie's great. I don't know what you're talking about, but... It's terrible. Oh, it's awesome. Awful. I'm... We'll discuss sometime. <laughs> but... I do have to ask. I mean, I know we talked about 60 million, but I'm watching this cast list come up as I'm watching this movie. I mean, I knew Jason Statham was on the cover, but almost every person in here is an actor 
who I have liked in something else. Even Matthew Lillard has his moments. I mean, Burt Reynolds, John Rhys Davies from Raiders of the Lost Ark, and as well as some great Shakespeare on stage and the show Sliders. Lily Sobieski from Deep Impact. I mean, this cast assembled together could make an amazing film. Yeah. I mean, Tarantino would hire this cast. It is diverse enough and eclectic enough that I could see Tarantino hiring every one of these people to be in a movie. How? Set in the 20th century or the 21st century. You would <laughs> absolutely. I mean, the idea that Burt Reynolds is the king <laughs> is such a joke that I never get over. It is eternally hilarious to be like, what kind of sorcery is going on here? <laughs> That's the best part, is he never commits to the role. He is just <laughs> Burt Reynolds in a king costume. Yep. <laughs> All I could think of was Norm McDonald's Burt Reynolds on Celebrity Jeopardy, <laughs> because that's about the performance we're getting from Burt Reynolds here. He's, like, chewing the gum. and <laughs> oh, oh, I'm dying now. Okay. <laughs> it's opportunistic. People had holes in their calendar and saw paychecks. And Uva Bowl hadn't become a thing yet. When they started filming this, it was 2005. Most people had heard of House of the Dead. Alone in the Dark hadn't come out. There was no notoriety to working with this guy yet. You just knew that they were making some shit Lord of the Rings ripoff, and they were going to pay you probably too much money to do it. So why not? And that's what it feels like. Everyone is just like, well, hey, I definitely could pay off a house or a car with this. I get it. So that's why you sign on. And yes, Kevin Costner is not alone in not wanting to commit to the artistic merit of playing Farmer and this. Again, it's a game in and of itself that didn't have a storyline. It's just people walking through a forest, killing things. And so what is this story going to be? What is the quest? If this is Tolkien, what is this about? It's about selling turnips, is I think how this wonderful quest begins. No, the very first scene, it begins with something I never wanted to see, which is Ray Liotta do- giving pillow talk. Well, I mean, we've seen it before, but yes, I don't know what to make of it. It's a strange moment in which every kiss he takes from Legally Sobieski is making some, like, Tolkien Valley somewhere, we'll learn it's called Christwind Hold at some point, burn? It's like, with every kiss, like, it's on fire more. I don't know what's happening. It's clear that, like, his cheeks are, like, turning purple and veiny, and so it's telegraphing the idea that she's magical and he's sucking her power, but to do what? I don't know. Okay, that was a special effect. I just thought Ray Liotta had aged poorly. I mean, no, I I believe that that was some CGI work there. Good CGI? I thought it was real. I thought it was sclerosis or something. I don't think there's a lot of good CGI in here. We can talk about it when we get to Statham. Just to set up Jason Statham, because I wanted to know where he was in his career at this point. Yeah. I mean, I knew I'd seen him in Lockstock and Snatch way back when, and then I kind of lost track of him, you know, Italian job. But this is after the first crank, which I really love, and the same year as Death Race and Transporter 3. Well, don't get confused. This came out in 2008, but it was shot in 2005. So I actually met Statham at the press junket for Crank, and I brought this movie up to him, and he just kind of smiled and wouldn't talk about it. Because, you know, like, everyone <laughs> wanted to know, like, why did you work with Uva Bowl? You're too... By 2008, everyone knows Uva Bowl is a piece of shit, and why would this guy, who seems to be on the rise, who seems like he could have been 
had a bigger career than he ended up having, quite frankly. But the answer was that at the time, he was really just coming off the first transporter. Again, the money was tempting. And I'm just going to put out there that Hobbs and Shaw made almost $800 million. So you say bigger than a career than he has. He found it in Fast and Furious. I suppose. I guess I feel like a more distinctive career, a more respectable. Uh, he didn't have to be the action guy that he became. But at any rate, that was his uh, attraction to this part. He said, I did this movie specifically because it was an opportunity to get my bona fides as an action movie hero. I only had had Transporter. And that was, you know, it was a small B movie. So this was an attempt, again, if you saw the budget and the aspirations, you would think that this was going to be a much bigger film. Anyway, poor guy. Yes, we all know who Uva Bull is by this point, and we all know where this movie's going. Was throwing boomerangs a thing in the game? Is that something you could do? You know, I never got a boomerang in the game. I was fighting with rakes and shovels and things and swords, so maybe, but let me put it to you this way. It's not iconic. And let me put it this way. Jason Statham has obviously never held one before because every time it leaves his hand, it's in the work of CGI artists. <laughs> and so why do that? Again, he's a martial artist. He didn't want to do this movie. He felt awkward about being in period. And you said you can use your kung fu fighting techniques here. We'll, we'll incorporate it. You're the kung fu farmer. We'll make that work somehow. But yeah, a boomerang. <laughs> Everyone was kung fu farming. <laughs> <laughs> That's a movie I would watch. It would be. I mean, again, <laughs> play with the right tone. This could be a funny parody of Tolkien. But I, we all know Bull famously does not get humor. To him, Postal is comedy and House of the Dead is serious. Well, and to your point with the boomerang, though, it is set up in such a way like it's either needs to be a nod to something big in the game or something that pays off later in this movie, which apparently it's neither nor. We see him use it two or three times in the beginning and then it gets stuck in a tree and we never see it again. I think it's supposed to be some kind of signature. I could only imagine it being something you had to include because this is not Australia. I mean, I just, I, it's so, it takes me so out of the time period. There's so many things that he could be throwing or using magic. I apologize if it is in the game, but I never saw one. And, you know, there's Ninja here. That They weren't in the game either. So Yeah, well, all right. So anyway, the point is... He is a simple man with a dark past. He was orphaned, and Norik saved him from some battle. I mean, we can see them ladling on there that obviously at some point he's going to have the birthright of the kingdom. Absolutely. As soon as they're like, he's an orphan and all this. But the introduction of Ron Perlman as Norik, Ron Perlman just couldn't control that pig, right? That pig was really running through his legs and about to trip him, right? <laughs> You know, I'm sure it wasn't rehearsed. The thing you know about Uva is, like, you get one take and we're moving on. And, like, they probably had just met 30 seconds ago. Somewhat of a metaphor for this entire movie. I thought for sure both wife and child were dead meat, though, because it does not take long before we start getting, I'm glad he has a family now, and I'm glad it's us. <laughs> yes. I mean, it is very funny. I mean, here's, here, you have the wife saying, you never tell me you love me, and then him turning around and picking up his son and saying, I love you oh so much. Well, we can see which way the dagger's going to fall here. Like, the little child, definitely not going to make it out of Act 1. And you're right, the wife will be in question. She disappears, maybe she's abducted. Sloppily, I think in both cuts, we see that she's alive long before 
Farmer will confirm that she's alive. But yes, it's a family in peril. It's a Mel Gibson role. This feels like if they had a hundred million more and a respectable director, Mel Gibson would have probably played this role. But I don't know the actress playing his wife, which is part of the reason why I thought she would also be marked for death. Claire Forlani? Yeah, I only know her from Mallrats. Who was she in Mallrats? She's the main girlfriend, the daughter of the game show host. And that was 12 years before this, so she looks vastly different. She was a last-minute replacement. Bull was angry that he was like, the actresses wouldn't do it. They kept backing out. I mean, he just doesn't seem to understand how he comes across. And so he was frustrated. Apparently, Claire Florlani and Jason Statham go way back. They're friends. So basically, he just made a phone call and she came on as a favor, really, to Jason and not to Uva. Has she ever spoken to him since? <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's the kind of thing that we're in many friendships, I would think. But again, the money has to help. The one that's going to hurt is like doing In the Name of the King 3, where there's <laughs> not a dime to be, you know, you're, you're fighting over nickels in the dirt. Here, at least, she probably got a comfortable salary. Everyone here is well paid. And, you know, technically speaking, there are some shots here that are professional. I actually am surprised, you know, they have rigs that are on ropes and... This is long before drones are a thing. They have some aerial shots that are kind of cool. Yeah, I agree completely. There are certain camera moves where I'm like, wow, the money is actually on screen. This is probably the best looking Uva movie we've gotten to yet. Are the people in the movie aware of the Krug prior to the events that kick off this movie? Because they don't seem surprised by their appearance of these monsters. They just know that they're getting killed by them. Well, first of all, they can't decide what they're called because it's Krug, Krug, Krag. I I heard four different pronunciations <laughs> and Uba himself at two different points calls them with two different accents and fully admits. He goes, you know, they're basically orcs. You know, like he's like, I'm not even going to hide my blatant theft from Tolkien in here. The point is they know that there is some kind of dog creature that I think magic has made them man-like. I think that they were on four legs, and now they stand upright and hold swords, and everyone's kind of mystified that, the, you know, they're laughing at the idea that Krugs are walking. It would be like saying an army of dogs came in and shot me. I mean, you know, it's just bizarre. <laughs> yeah, okay, so it is just kind of aping from foreknowledge of orcs then, and hoping that the viewer doesn't get lost by that. Oh, well, there's these anthropomorphic dog creatures that are killing people. Yeah. And so, yeah, we get some kung fu here with Statham. I don't think it's particularly good. It's not bad, though. Here's the thing is, we just watched what should have been a good fighting movie. We just reviewed King of Fighters. I watched this after King of Fighters, and you see in a wide shot Jason Statham leap in the air, kick a guy in the chest, and then punch another guy with no rapid cuts. There's not a single shot. With Ray Park or Maggie Q or anybody in that film that's as good as this one shot of Statham. And I'm like, wow, that's really cool. And then he never does it again the whole film. (laughs) Does he not? I guess, you know, there's like three, this is an extended sequence, and they're always cutting away to supporting characters. This movie, at least in the uncut director's version, feels very meandering. I don't know how the theatrical might play to you, Justin, but I felt like it just takes forever to get through a scene because they keep breaking it up with five other scenes. But the Krugs come out of the woods, attack him at his farm. His wife's already gone off to the in-laws, and by the time he gets there, his son's dead. And these creatures reminded me of nothing so much as, like, 
the nameless dregs in Suicide Squad who were like golems. You know, I know you say they're like dogs, but they just look like people in bad mushroom costumes. I'm totally getting shades of Battle for Endor made for TV <laughs> yeah. Star Wars movie here. Yeah I, yeah, I agree. Like, I'm running out of compliments. I can say that some of the shots, the aerial views were impressive. A few of the CGI tapestries are okay-ish. But yeah, once we get into the details of these villains, they're not scary. And I did see the longer cut, and I will say, I was getting a big Lord of the Rings, Peter Jackson vibe, okay? I mean, yes, I feel this movie is too long, but I also feel Peter Jackson's movies are too long when you watch the extended cuts or even the theatrical cuts of Hobbit. And so when we have this long scene of Solana with her father and her son and talking about the bells of war that nobody has had to ring in years and all of this. You know, I'm just thinking this is an acceptable made-for-HBO version of Lord of the Rings. That would be Game of Thrones, and this is not Game of Thrones. (laughs) No, no, it's not Game of Thrones. But the production quality seems higher-end TV-based, and I'm just going with it as we're introduced to an expansive amount of characters, you know, the war has happened and yet we still cut back to Muriela getting sword lessons from Commander Terish. I'm just kind of soaking it in. And we're also introduced here to Duke Fallow. And my God, I am surprised. I thought for sure Matthew Lillard would not be able to play period. I mean, I <laughs> don't tell me he does. I think <laughs> He does so much better than I expected. I mean, keep in mind, the first time I ever saw Matthew Lillard, he was playing serial killer in Hackers. And I think he actually does okay here. I'm not going to say I'm completely convinced, but I'm going to say he does not feel like California surfer boy cosplaying. Uh, okay, that I'm having the exact opposite. Like, all of the people in the kingdom feel like they have had no coaching in language, in costuming, in how to carry themselves in any other time than, like, what they do in their own trailer. Like, they <laughs> are just themselves, and that's fine, because Uva Bowl doesn't care either. Like, he is not a detail-oriented person. Do whatever you want. And he will more or less film it and go on. He does not have a whole lot of direction for these people. And consequently, this is a world that does feel very modern to me in all of its performances and all of its presentations. I will say that Lillard, out of this huge cast of people, is at least being consistent and giving it his all. You know what I'm saying? Like, he is committed to this character he's created. Now, whether or not it's period appropriate or not, that's another question. But he's there for the long haul, and he's and he's going to just go for it. I'm not going to lie, though. Marjorie was with me for some of this movie. Very little. She couldn't take too much. Mm. <laughs> but she was there when Matthew Lillard finally meets his end. And I did go, zoink, Scoob! Then <laughs> <laughs> you undermined your own point. <laughs> and I don't need to say another thing. There's no tiebreaker needed. <laughs> You have already admitted that he is not, period. No, it's just, it's, I, I I can't not see Matthew Lillard. But I'm just saying, he's so much better than Burt Reynolds, okay? I mean, that's not the way to go here. Here's what I would say. The thing about Lord of the Rings is, it has a vast number of characters and subplots as well, but it has a wonderfully simple middle linchpin that I care about greatly. 
how are they going to get the ring to Mordor? I can't tell you what this movie's about. I don't know what the quest is. I think it's maybe to find the wife, but even that, I'm, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, what are we trying to do here? You see, and I think Fellowship of the Ring, you could listen to those reviews in the archives. I love Peter Jackson's Fellowship of the Ring. I feel that one is very clear. Get the ring to Mordor. By the time you get to the two towers with Wormtongue and the king and Gandalf the White's over here and Sam and Frodo are over there and all of this Boromir's dead. Yeah. I'm, it gets more mixed up. You got the Ents. Okay. So that's where I feel this movie lies is we've got what I consider to be several parallel plots, but I think they're all pretty clear. Farmer wants his wife back if she's still alive, and Norik as well as Solana's brother Bastion are going to go with him. So we've got that storyline, which with Statham as the star, should be our main storyline, but isn't. Yeah, the shocker is that you would think that we would follow them in a road movie setting, step by step, having incredible adventures along the way. They try to straddle a bridge that's fallen apart and fall into a river. Yeah, medieval zip line. And then there's like some chicks that are like aerial artists in the trees. The, the nymphs. And that's it. That's I, all that they're going to see. I do have to complain because when Ron Perlman and Bastion fall from the zip line, you see them falling and they're way high up and you're like, oh my God, are they going to die? And then they land in water. You never see them land. How do you not have the shot of stuntmen hitting the water? You see them falling, cut to Jason Statham's, like, home alone, oh no, face, and then you cut to them, and they're just swimming. How do you not have the shot of them landing in that water? That bothers me. Yeah, particularly when you could. Particularly when this is a well-funded production that has the people capable of doing that stunt and the camera people. Give them 10 extra minutes and they can set up and get that shot, but it's the steamroller Uva is moving on. He just doesn't care about coverage. All those pickup shots, all that second unit stuff is just not getting covered here. And so it feels very disoriented the way it's edited. I agree, and I, that's why I, for long stretches of time, forget about Farmer during the first third of this movie. Uh, isn't it amazing that Jason Statham could be in an Uva Bowl movie and he feels like he's eighth build? Like this is a movie about Matthew Lillard and Ray Liotta. <laughs> I wonder how much of the version I saw cuts some of the stuff you're seeing, because to me, sure, it's two hours long, but it does mostly feel like Statham's movie. Like, maybe they cut some of this other stuff from the shorter version. I mean, they still do cut back and forth to the castle. Interesting. So that could be the impact. Okay. Yeah. And that could very well be. All of these supporting characters get endless scenes. We get who they are in one scene, and I feel like they get four or five to reestablish what is very simple. Like, I get it. Like, we have John Reese davis a veteran of Lord of the Rings. He's playing some kind of, I don't even know what a Magus is, Magic user. Yeah, right. Like, I get it. He floats around and shit. Okay, Magus is actually a word from the game. I don't know if they made it up or no, just took no, it from... No, no, it's a real word. I, You know, I just don't know enough about it. John Rhys Davies, you're right. He, I completely forgot he was Gimli in Lord of the Rings. He is perfect here. I mean, he is correctly cast. 
Well, yeah, he can do this in his sleep, and he is probably doing at least half of it in his <laughs> sleep. And so he has this daughter that wants to be a warrior. Was that not a plot in Lord of the Rings? Wasn't there some female that dresses up in a suit of armor at some point? Yeah, because she defeats the guy at the end because he can't be defeated by any man. And It's so strange. Like, for half of it, help me out this. Is she made of magic? We don't know anything about the mother other than she's dead, but she has magical powers that she's learning, and at the same time, Ray Liotta seems to be making out with her entirely because he can suck those powers from her. And from her bloodline is what I got, is that by seducing her, he was able to increase his power from the more powerful bloodline of John Rhys Davies, but he was seducing her and also teaching her. And I guess maybe the stronger she got, the more he was able to siphon. But she's also reading a book that her dad wrote on the perils of magic. So again, with a title like that, you would think it would be about not learning magic spells because they're perils. It's not clear, and I don't need the fine details. Uva Bowl, I got it, I got it. But seriously... You could cut all of this, right? You could cut her completely out of this movie. Like, she runs off to be the warrior, and she gets, like, lost in the forest and gets captured. Like, I don't think she ever has maybe the last second where she kills Ray Liotta. But up until that point, I don't think she does a damn thing in this film. Could you not remove her entirely? I think you could, because, I mean, she's not even needed in the end to help save the day. They just kind of put her there because she's still there. Right. Yeah, they dress her up in drag and she gets to, yes, I think it's a magic sword, too. It's like, she has some magic powers. I don't know. It doesn't matter. I understand her role, you know? I understand what she serves if you're sitting around saying, I want to make a franchise. And John Rhys-Davies is in this one movie and we're going to set him up to die and we're going to have this person carry on. I don't know why you get Lily Sobieski again, not exactly playing period, but I get what she serves from a franchise point of view. But yeah, she, I also forget about for much of the story. The beginning half of the movie for me is all about Ray Liotta and Matthew Lillard and Burt Reynolds. Yeah, for sure. And we've already discussed Burt Reynolds, the accent, all of it. His eyes! Like, you want to talk about some magic? Like, could you please get them on the same side of the face? (laughs) They are so stretched out. It's like, it's horrifying to me. I thought a lot of it was his helmet. He's not even trying to put the costume on right. I mean, that helmet. (laughs) That helmet. (laughs) You mentioned medieval times, and that's exactly what it looked like, is that he was a waiter. Yeah, he's the cool king that everyone wants the throne of. Like, that is just baffling to me. But, yeah, and just all of it. Bert, oh, it's just so painful to see you. I mean, he... People forget. I think it's easy to because he did so many trash movies, but he was like a legitimately good actor at one point, and he's better than this. And then he had that comeback with Boogie Nights that he kind of threw away, too. But yeah, we are now 10 years beyond that. So this is what all of that Oscar hype got you. It's strange that he's the king. It's strange that he. it's all about him, this nefarious plot. Basically, Matthew Lillard is his nephew and is next in line, unless this magical son that Bert doesn't even know that he has and got lost and was hidden by his magus because it's better for him to be a farmer growing up protected by anonymity i don't think he was hidden by the magus i think he got lost and the magus is like 
fate works in great ways because if he hadn't been lost, he would have been killed. All right, I'm lost. That's all I can tell. Yes, that we all know that Jason Statham's going to be the king, but they take an inordinate amount of time for you to find out that Ron Perlman took him, so wouldn't he know? He was just wandering through in a battle. Okay, I give up. It's fine. Whatever. Well, and Burt Reynolds doesn't help us out with his acting in this scene because he has a line that's like, I thought they were all killed. Yeah. Your children? The way he delivered line implied like he ordered the Magus to go kill all his offspring <laughs> that were out there. We, yeah, we have no idea what happened or why his child was like. There's never been even a mention that he had a son. Again, you, that's the kind of clue you want to drop early so that when we find out, we go, oh, I didn't see that coming. But of course, if they mentioned that he had a son that died, and then we also know that Jason Statham is some orphan named boy that grew up to be farmer, we would it would be staring us in the face. So yeah, they're doing their best to try and hide what few cards they have in their hand. Who is worse? I really want to know. Burt Reynolds or Ray Liotta? Oh, Burt. Burt. Without a doubt. Burt. Burt is lazier. He he demanded to be in bed for three quarters of his scenes. <laughs> Ray Liotta's just chewing scenery and doesn't know what movie he's in. Yeah, yeah. Ray Liotta. <laughs> he's just doing that Ray Liotta laugh. You just For no reason. Again, he's just camping it up. He's having some kind of fun. It does feel better suited for a gangster movie. But yet, I feel like Ray Liotta also wasn't on set that much because most of Ray Liotta's scenes are alone. He's somewhere and he's telepathically speaking or he's possessing one of the Krug and talking voiceover. And I'm like, is he just on a blue screen set for a couple of days? He showed up for the fight and he showed up to screw Lily Sobieski and the rest of the movie. He had no interaction with the rest of the crew. You know, Uwe Boll's commentary is that everyone was great. Everyone was everything. I have no idea uh, how he interacted with the rest of the cast. Ray Liotta hates Uwe Boll. Oh. He was really pissed off because Uwe would bring his friends to the set. There was no closed set. It was very difficult to work on these sets. He was not a happy camper with the way this went. Okay. Well, I mean, I can imagine that must be true for a majority of these actors. They've all done better work than this. So we know that the direction is failing them and they're floundering and yeah, when the movie comes out, it's an embarrassment that you were in an Uva Bowl, and it'll always be a stain on his resume. I know this movie predates it quite a bit, but when Ray Liotta was in his, you know, night of the Krug, you know, warging thing, that voice he had, it all I was thinking is the Bud Light Night from those commercials. <laughs> Okay, yeah, that's going back a little bit, but yeah, maybe. You know who's drunk is Bert, though. Like, you know, they, they talk about him, quote-unquote, poisoned. I'm like, that's not why you're stumbling around. He says to Matthew Lillard, drinking wine with breakfast is not the greatest path to redemption, and makes Matthew Lillard pour it out. I think he just wants the wine for himself. <laughs> it's just something he was told earlier that morning by his handlers. <laughs> definitely, definitely hitting the bottle. That's why I would argue that Bert is both more fun to watch, the most fun in this movie to watch, and yeah, just woefully wrong for what they're trying to go for. I was surprised how much of the movie Burt Reynolds was in, because early on it's established we get Duke Fallow, Matthew Lillard's character, saying to Ray Liotta's galleon, we need to speed this up. I need to be king. I'm tired of kowtowing. I need to be given the respect that comes with the title since I'm not being given respect for who I am. And so galleon poisons the king. And he's like, well, you wanted things sped up. So I think Burt Reynolds, 
He signed on to do a few scenes. He showed up for a week. No, he survives the poisoning. He's in most of the movie. I'm like, you know, lengthwise, he doesn't get a lot of screen time, but he had to be around for much of the shoot, a lot of different scenes, a lot of different setups. I'm like, wow, it's not a cameo. It's not a glorified minor role. He is in more of this movie than Jack Nicholson is of In the Company of Men. Yeah, and he has to hang around long enough so that when Farmer comes back from his voyage... Of nothing, by the way, of getting wet in a lake and hanging out with some chicks and trees that he can say, oh, uh, yeah, you're my son and make some metaphor out of seaweed. Like, it, I mean, it's just god awful what he has to do in this film. But you mentioned the tree nymphs. I do have to say, Christana Loken caught my eye. And you know what? She's Blood Rain in the Blood Rain trilogy. I'm not dreading those movies. <laughs> She's Blood Rain in the first Blood Rain movie that had a 25 million budget. She will go away for two and three and they will get someone less cost prohibitive. She doesn't look like it in this movie, but she was the TX mm-hmm. in Terminator 3. That's primarily where I would know her from. But here, you know, different hair. Not wearing a dominatrix outfit. She's leader of the tree nymphs. Yeah, she's pretty good, actually, for whatever she has to do, which is absolutely nothing. But it feels like she actually bothered to learn how to, like, use the rope rig and come down on the vine and, you know, gets through her lines without cracking a smile or cracking a 40. (laughs) I mean, so give her some props. That rope artistry or acrobatics was a... It was a thing around that time. I remember Pink putting on a a whole series of shows where she would do songs with those ribbon strings and everything. So I think they were kind of reaching into pop culture a little bit there with these tree nymphs. Oh, they're reaching everywhere. Whatever works. I just saw them coming down. I'm like, oh, they're the Ewoks. They're going to join the fight by the end. And I was not wrong. (laughs) Yeah, although their inclusion is bizarre because, again, what is the fight ultimately? The fight ultimately is that Matthew Lillard, who was also poisoned along with the king, but gets an antidote from Ray Liotta, eventually has to run away, the coward that he is, convinces some of the men that the king is dead and that they should follow him. I'm not quite sure. Plus, they're hanging out with the Krug. Like, that would be a tip-off, I would think. Like, if I were suddenly in the same battalion as my enemy, that maybe I shouldn't listen to Matthew Lillard. In fact, Matthew Lillard should be the tip-off that I shouldn't listen to Matthew Lillard. Some of the extras give good facial expressions when Matthew Lillard is like, Hey, Dilly Dilly! For the honor of me! And just some of those extras given side-eye. I get the impression they're like, what the hell are we really supposed to be doing here? And they are more than happy when Burt Reynolds shows up to be like, yeah, we're going with you, Burt. Yeah. Basically, Lillard is just doing uh, Joaquin Phoenix from Gladiator. He's a sniveling little bastard. We can't wait to see him get his comeuppance. And they have this character, Terish, who's just been kind of hanging out in the background who will eventually, you know, he fears the day that he's going to have to serve him as king, but gets to cut his throat when John Reese davies shows up and says, no, you can you can kill him because he's a traitor. Yeah, they poison the king, and he survives, and then Matthew Lillard suddenly is Robin Hood, the master archer, It does take two shots, and Burt Reynolds sees one arrow go past, and is like, I'm just going to sit here, and then the second one hits him. I mean, he's not really giving his all... In the fight. I mean, again, I think of Return of the King. You know, they're out there. Even the kings are f- swinging swords and things. Burt Reynolds is on a horse, but I think he's just sitting there chewing the gum like, yeah, man, 
Keep fighting. Good. Good. <laughs> I mean, would you really want to see Uva Bull of all people direct Burt Reynolds in a sword fight? I mean, that would be, <laughs> it'd be something. I'll tell you what. But yeah, may, you know, arrows. Remember it from Deliverance, Burt's better days. Maybe it's better just to stick with the arrows. <laughs> I don't know. As long as this movie is, I feel like we're just tearing through the brush here and we're kind of at the end. I mean, unless you miss some of your favorite meandering parts of walking through trees endlessly, it takes forever to get to the two hour mark, it feels like. And that's where the king is finally killed and Matthew Lillard is killed. And it feels like the climax of the movie. I mean, there's a big battle with the Krug and Matthew Lillard kills the king there's the dungeon of the dungeon siege is that place that's burning and characters we don't care about Ron Perlman and the other guy Balian they just got thrown into the cart with the wife we've known that she's been alive longer than we should have they tipped us off to that much earlier what happened there in the dungeon siege like I felt like if the movie's a dungeon siege we needed to see them rescued or Whatever, but I think all that happens is like Balian picks up a blonde chick. Like he spends the whole time chatting up this blonde from another. You know what I'm talking yeah. about, right? And Norik dies. I mean, Norik tries yeah. to oh, fight. Right. You're right. Ron Perlman is out of here. He's like, I am not doing any more of this. In, in the shorter <laughs> version, did this register at all that they went to the dungeon in Mordor or whatever the hell they are? Yeah, I mean a little bit, but the dungeon felt the most set piecey out of all the set pieces. I mean, like out of everything with this budget they have. I mean, we're in forests. We're seeing CGI castles. This literally felt like something off of Gilligan's Island. It just looked like cray paper mm-hmm. in, on a dark set, you know? They're literally breaking their manacles off the rock, and it I mean, it looks like they would come off rather easily. I mean, even if you haven't been eating in three days, you'd have the strength <laughs> to pull that off. It looks like they're about to fall anyway, so... <laughs> yeah, it's all kind of strange. So that's going on. You're right. While there's this big Krug versus tree lady and king army battle and it feels like the climax of the movie i mean we're like we have the new king he is here and matthew lillard gets his throat slit by that terish who didn't want to serve him and then terish makes this face like oh what have i done i've committed murder nothing ever comes of it it's just a big dramatic moment lillard is now out of it And I feel like the movie should have credits rolling pretty soon. It does feel like if you're cutting it in two, you cut it. Unfortunately, at the two-hour mark, there's only an hour left. That's not your next movie. But it feels like a pause of some sort. And then it hits me, wait, Ray Liotta's still out there. We still have more to fucking do. Yeah, and of course, (laughs) Justin, at the two-hour mark, you're done. Like, they again, we're still suffering for 45 more minutes, but you more or less are watching credits roll. You're like Burt Reynolds. At two hours, you're out. Exactly. So I imagine all these subplots are registering with you, but maybe it – does it move fast? I mean, do you feel – Engaged is not the word. I know you're not engaged. It's still a slog. Like, I don't know what extra 45 minutes they could possibly add to this. I mean – Everything you guys are talking about is stuff I have seen. I mean, I don't think they cut anything major out. It sounds like they may have just trimmed scenes down a bit. A large part of it, that's exactly what it looked like. And I'll never understand why all of a sudden they're climbing on rock faces. Did that make it into your cut? I have to feel like that got cut. Yeah, when they were trying to get into the cave entrance, they did this little weird boomerang rope trick. And the way it was cut in this one is the two of them get on the rope and run off the cliff and grab it 
And Statham lets go, but it looks like he just falls off into nothing. And then they cut to him grabbing onto the side of a cliff and then kind of freebasing his way up. Listen, you missed such amazing scenes. I mean, Justin, I think you need to go back and rewatch the other one because you missed the scene where they name the pig. (laughs) And you missed the scene where Bastion tells his wife where the food stocks are before his journey. (laughs) And most importantly... You missed the scene in the Krug camp where the Krug commander, controlled by Ray Liotta, comes in and finds Matthew Lillard about to have a three-way with a skinny chick and a chunky chick. Oh, oh yeah, I thought that was going to get kinky. I was actually like, ooh, this could be actually... No, no, PG-13, it's just <laughs> not happening. Again, you wish that it was more trashy in the Uva Bowl sense. This thing, you're right, it's just littered with scenes that go nowhere and don't expand upon the character's whatsoever it sounds like you guys got to experience the first cut i experienced the second cut and what should have been put out is like a fourth or fifth cut like this all still needs a lot of fat trimmed from it yeah exactly you have to give up the idea that you have some grand epic to tell most of these characters have no point and they should be removed and we should be focused on jason statham your star that's too good for this that somehow you nabbed and you make it his action movie and he's in almost every scene and then maybe you just have something that's you know mildly passable but again they're going for lord of the rings they want ensemble you don't hire this cast just to focus on jason statham but here's it's called editing like yes you wanted lord of the rings and then you look at the footage and no you don't have it so let's get real editing is where you get real it's time to say goodbye to all the things that don't work and that's 80 percent of this movie burt reynolds goodbye you are really bad in fact Can we call it something else? Let's call it Dungeon Siege, and we won't even acknowledge there is a king, right? Like, we don't even need you in this film. But I have heard commentaries with directors and editors where they specifically say, we wanted to lose this scene, but it has important information or it has a setup, so we can't lose it. I mean, editors' jobs are, yes, to trim the fat, but they're also to make sure that what's left is coherent, which I don't feel was successfully done in last week's movie. Believe it or not, I'm, I'm right now saying Uva Bowl's bloated mess is better than the 90-minute fighting movie we did last week. I mean, I can understand why you might feel that way. And again, I'm getting some laughs out of this, which I didn't get laughs out of much last time. But you know what the funniest part is? The bookbinding scene. Like, the big battle. It's finally time for Statham to have his big fight with Ray Liotta And they have sword fights where the swords are fighting on their own through magic. Yeah, I figured that was John Rhys Davies and Ray Liotta. And I figured John Rhys Davies is like, I'm too old for this shit. I'm going to be in your movie, but I'm not going to do the sword fight scene. And Uva's like, we'll have the swords fight on their own then. (laughs) Yeah. And then, like, okay, here comes Statham. And he's, like, bound by books. Like, he gets literally attacked by flapping hardbound books. It worked for Ash in Evil Dead 2. Uh, it's comedy. A uh, book tornado takes him down and then traps him on the ground. Yeah, that's just, wow. You know that Statham had to be mad that, like, no, I want to do a flip. I want to do, like, and they're like, nope, books. And if Jason Statham is our hero, he's our new king, shouldn't he take down Leota? He does say a line, and I th- thought it was going to go stupider than it does, because he says, you have to use magic, fight with honor. And I'm like, but that's stupid because you're going to die. So, you know, I wouldn't like it if Ray Liotta was like, 
I have honor and then loses a sword fight. But by the same token, it's unfulfilling what I, I, I know that Lily Sobieski needs to get revenge. He penetrated her, so she's going to penetrate him, something like that. But No, no, Arnie, we don't need Lily. That's what I'm saying. Cut her out of this movie entirely. Your abs- your instincts are absolutely right. This is about some guy that started as a farmer, finds out that he can become the king, and has to do so by stabbing this magic Ray Liotta. And that's it. Anybody that doesn't fit into that scenario, bye-bye. We don't need you in this film. She should definitely not get the kill. If if it does, it needs to be more teamwork and less assassination. I don't know what she accomplished by doing all of this. Did she do it through her magic? Does this prove that she is her father's daughter? It was kind of like a magic sword. Yeah, I mean, I almost think like there's some sort of like dark side, light side power struggle going on here that's just not spoken about. You know, like we're supposed to be rooting for her because she represents the last of the good power and Leota is the dark power. And it's just if that's what they're trying to do, they're not talking about it. Well, then she should be the star of this movie or have a part as equally important to that of Jason Statham. I mean, again, this is what you do in writing. You you work out what's important and you make sure everyone has their moment and you don't go rolling into production until all of that is ironed out. I'm just saying if with a director other than Uva at the helm, somebody who really cares about story and character, everything you have here could work. But I mean, again, I think of Lily Sobieski as the Liv Tyler, you know, just because we focus a lot on Elijah Wood and Sean Astin doesn't mean Vigo and Liv can't have their moments. And here, that's what they're trying to do. I see them trying so hard to do it, but just not hitting the mark ever. Well, yeah, because nobody's really thought about the story, and and there was nothing to pull from from the video game. The video game didn't have these characters. They're not honoring anything about the game. The only thing I can tell that's like the game, I did see a little bit of the footage, was that when they have those cameras on ropes, and they go swinging by, and you see all these people fighting in the trees or whatever, and you have this pan shot in the air, like, that's the only thing that's like the game. Otherwise... Yeah, they have to write it all on their own. And I think, interestingly enough, the writer that's mostly credited on this did clean up. But his claim to fame is Splice. If you saw that horror movie, like Doug Taylor, like he's someone that went on and had a career of some kind. So like they had somebody there to shape this, but I believe he came in last minute. I think his duty, unfortunately, was try to fix what Uva had broken. And that's just no way to approach an epic. But it does feel just kind of over after Lily Zobieski stabs Ray Liotta in the back. After three hours, I felt like I should have something a little bit more climactic, but Ray Liotta's dead. The crew just run away. Well, we find out that Statham finally can say what he's always wanted to. We're supposed to understand he was a reserved person who couldn't tell his wife he loved her. And now he loves her so much, he's not going to make her do the sequel. (laughs) The big payoff is supposed to be that Statham is the unwilling king who finally decides to take the throne and he's going to be more of a king of the people. But none of that is set up in such a way that it's a satisfying payoff. And the people loved Burt Reynolds. I mean, it's not like Burt Reynolds was a bad king and now they're like, yay, we have a good king. I mean, otherwise they probably would have backed Lillard a little bit more. So they go from having a good king to having another good king. And I mean, that's better than having Matthew Lillard as a tyrant. But... The status quo of the people is just a net neutral. 
Yeah, well, we'll find out in the sequel. None of these people matter anyway. Did this film matter? Justin Stewart? I feel like there's a chance on this one. Do either of you recommend, in the name of the king, a dungeon siege tale? Justin? So this movie, to me, is just more proof that Uva Bowl is an alien on our planet <laughs> as a film student. And everything we see of his is homework that he's sending back to his home world and getting graded on. And I think that home world may have watched this movie and said, Uva, you've done it. You've delivered us the best movie you've done so far. Please come home. And Uva said, no, no, no. I have two more of these movies to make. But if I'm going to grade this movie, I'm going to give it two grades. I'm going to say I recommend this as the best Uva Bowl movie I've ever seen, which is saying absolutely nothing. But mm -hmm. <laughs> as far as an arcade movie goes, hey, it's a little bit more competent than stuff we've seen. Even just last week was such a mess that maybe it felt competent in comparison, but it's still a mess. I mean, it's just uneven. Everybody in this movie is in a different movie than the person they're on screen with i mean i had fun because of the people in this movie because of the cast i mean if you take burt reynolds out of this if you take lillard out of this i'm not enjoying it at all mm -hmm. i'm enjoying how fish out of water these guys are in this type of movie and that's the enjoyment i'm taking from it but as like a no-name poor man's version of lord of the rings it fails spectacularly i mean arnie you said at one point this would have been a good 80s hbo type of production I think if this would have been made in the 70s, this would have been just fine for a made-for-TV ABC Sunday night movie. But that's not what it is. This is 2007. There's real money being spent here. And yeah, at the end of the day, if you want a good laugh, I think you could probably fast-forward through parts and just wait till you see something that looks kind of funny, which is most of the time going to be Burt Reynolds in period costume, <laughs> looking very confused. But I almost want to give it a slight brown arrow. I'm not going to give it like a flaming red, but it's not so bad that it's good. So it's just this side of uh, not recommend. Stewart. I'm going to call it the second best Uva Bowl. I still feel like Postal is probably a little bit more to his strength. Like it plays to his anger in a way. Like I felt like he was more revved up and passionate about what was going on. I got more of the sense of the director from Postal than here where I... I can tell he just doesn't give a shit about any of this fairies, fantasies, all of this stuff. He is not a director that cares. He doesn't have the right temperament to tell stories. And I know that he retired. Like, he has apparently now gone into the restaurant business, which I can't imagine. What, do you order a steak and they bring you a cow and a hammer and say, go at it? Like, I mean, like, I'm not going to bother to cook it for you. Like, I just feel like Uva Bowl doesn't care to prepare. He leaves it for you. And... Yeah, in this case, it does lead for some brown arrow fun. I do love Burt Reynolds in this movie. Ray Liotta's pretty good, too. But, again, I saw the uncut directors. No, that is way too long for any movie. No bad movie is it good for three hours. And this is interminable. It's an easy flaming red arrow for me. I'm going to agree with Justin. I mean... I went back and looked at what I reviewed Postal as, and they're close to neck and neck, but I do believe this to be the best Uva Bowl movie I have seen, and it made me remember something. When I think of Uva Bowl, I think of pain. But House of the Dead had its moments. You know, Uva Bowl 
is not the worst. He's just consistently bad. And here, I saw this, and about halfway through the movie, yes, I'm laughing at Burt Reynolds, and I'm having fun laughing at Burt Reynolds. Yep. And I'm having fun laughing at Ray Liotta. I mean, just the anachronisms there. But there was a brief moment in this watching where I'm like, could this be a recommend? I'm watching it. I'm seeing Statham do ninja moves, and I'm watching the tree nymphs come down and do acrobatics. And... Oh, you need to go to bed then. You're just way too tired. <laughs> no. No. It was a brief moment. Yeah, you're sleep deprived. I'm sorry you were that tired. <laughs> it is, I think, the best Uva Bowl movie. Here's the thing. At the end of the three hours, I didn't feel like my time had been totally wasted. I felt like this was semi-competent. Like, it's a not recommend. Mm -mm. See, it's not competent. It just didn't hurt as much. No, but some of those aerial shots, some of the camera work. I agreed. I thought technically there were a few shots that were really cool. Visually, it did not suck. And I felt like Statham was not really bad. He wasn't great, but he's British, and, you know, that always helps with the period pieces to give people English accents. I mean, it's not fair, but it's true. Sorry, Bert, but if you were British, it wouldn't have been quite as bad. (laughs) true. (laughs) So I didn't hate it, and it's a not recommend. Good. But it's not a strong not recommend. It's not a flaming red arrow. It's just a red arrow through the heart of Burt Reynolds, but I've seen so much worse when it comes to video game movies. I looked. This is the 15th best video game movie I have seen. <laughs> the 15th. Yes. What was 14th? Silent Hill. Oh, God. That's way better than this. You know, my biggest disappointment with this movie is that the credits didn't have that classic Burt Reynolds blooper role going. <laughs> I think the blooper reel was in the yes, movie. Yes, exactly. <laughs> But you know what? You want flaming, horrible, terrible. There's still plenty of time because Jason Statham's out of here and they're bringing in Dolph. Has there ever been a good movie with Dolph Lundgren top build? Top build. No. I don't think so either. Uh, Maybe he was top build in Showdown in Little Tokyo, which is a guilty. Maybe I need to revisit that movie. Mm. Maybe I'm praising it way more than it deserves. But I remember loving that movie in college. Okay, you know what? Like, it's not even the worst that it's going to get. We are only halfway through all the Uva Bowl movies we have, are going to have to watch. We've done two House of the Dead, two Alone in the Dark, a Postal, and an In the Name of the King. But only one of the House of the Deads was his. Yeah, I'm counting it all. It's under his umbrella. We've still got two more of these Dungeon Siege movies, three Blood Reigns, and a Far Cry. So there is plenty of chance for him to, I guess, get better or get so much worse. I'm going to predict the latter as we continue down the dungeon. So you're saying we're a far cry from over. I think so. Oh, boy. Uh, Well, (laughs) we'll see how much you're smiling next week. I'll be smiling this Friday, though. Why is that? Because this Friday, we are starting our Tom Cruise retrospective series. Yes, due to the whole coronavirus situation, A Quiet Place 2 got moved. So while we did have A Quiet Place Part 1 scheduled for this Friday and A Quiet Place Part 2 scheduled for next Friday, those are in our Platinum Donation series. Instead, 
what we've done is move up our gold donation series. And we've added another film to it. It was going to be eight Tom Cruise movies, Risky Business, through Born on the Fourth of July. But now we're actually starting one movie earlier, the first movie where Tom Cruise had top billing, a 1983 raunch comedy called Losing It. Will Jacob Stewart and I be losing it with laughter over this Tom Cruise, Jackie Earl Haley, Shelley Long film? You can find out this Friday and help support our show. The details are at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. And, you know, while you're quarantined or sequestered or working from home, whatever you're doing during this time, if you donate, you can hear two Now Playing podcasts per week for the rest of the summer. And yes, things are in flux as today they just canceled Black Widow or moved it to an unknown future date. But our donation schedule as it stands right now, this Friday, losing it. And then every Friday after that, we've got Risky Business, All the Right Moves, and then Legend. Then we have a week for a patron show. Then we've got four more Tom Cruise movies, Top Gun, The Color of Money, Cocktail, and Rain Man. And the silver level is still going to be the Candyman series. We're hoping that it ends on time in June with Candyman 2020. Universal Pictures said they're putting their stuff out on digital, same day as theaters, so... Maybe Candyman will come out on digital, or maybe that podcast will be delivered at a later time. We are just really in a fluid situation right now. We're rolling with all the schedule changes, but you can always keep up with the latest schedule at nowplayingpodcast.com in the right-hand column. But yeah, you can get twice as many Now Playing Podcasts. Head to nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. A gold-level donation of $25 or more will get you... The Us podcast we released last Friday, and then this Friday, Losing It, and a lot more shows to come. Or you can go Platinum, and we hope that we'll be able to finish the donation drive off late summer, maybe, with A Quiet Place, A Quiet Place Part 2, and Bird Box. And there's even higher levels where you can get the Ghostbusters series and the Purge series, and you get the first three Ghostbusters reviews and the first four Purge reviews as soon as you donate, And then when Ghostbusters Afterlife comes out and The Purge 5 comes out, hopefully in July, you'll get those reviews as well. We really appreciate your support during this time. We know everything is in flux globally. It's impacted our lives as well. But we are very committed to keeping Now Playing podcast coming on Totally Free Tuesday. And then for those who can help support us on the bonus show Friday as well. Justin Stewart, thanks for crawling this dungeon with me. Mm-hmm. Till next time, game over. We did it. Will I ever see you again? What is it you said? Perhaps in my dreams tonight. Perhaps another time. Perhaps another time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed the show. <laughs> you have won nothing but time. 
Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review podcast. You have killed these! I will simply beckon more! Also at our site, you can find hundreds of other movie reviews, including Star Wars, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Independence Day, The Avengers Films, Back to the Future, Batman, Superman, The Fast and the Furious, and more. Do you sometimes long for something more? Now Playing Podcast is a show without any sponsors or ads. We rely on support from listeners like you to keep Now Playing operating. Your king needs you. You can donate to the show and, as our thank you, receive bonus podcasts. Over 150 bonus movie reviews are available to choose from on the Now Playing Podbean page, including Alien, Night of the Living Dead, Jurassic Park, Ghostbusters, Indiana Jones, Lord of the Rings, Psycho, Troll, and more. Does it occur to you, farmer, that there may be events of greater importance than the loves and losses of our particular lives? Nah. It doesn't occur to me. Find a full list of available bonus shows at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. Your king needs you far more than he understands. You can also join the Now Playing Patron campaign through our Podbean site. Patrons of $10 or more get a new exclusive movie review every month. Plus, even more perks, including one where you can pick a movie for our hosts to review. Find the details on our website. Well, that saved us a lot of time. You can help us out by leaving us a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your other podcast store of choice. Make it happen. You wish to accelerate things? Bye! We shall accelerate. You can follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are available on our homepage. The King's army will require every man capable of combat. Who is with us? Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. I cannot stand the suffering rule of that senile goat. Associate produced by Jason Latham. I have friends. I wield influence. Now Playing is edited by Stephen and Arnie. My mom always told me when someone looks at, you should give them a hook. Now playing credits read by Brock. I was just talking. Just talking. Well, everyone's got a talent. Just talking seems to be yours. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. I only know what you tell me, and you tell me nothing. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with the motion pictures reviewed or otherwise referred to herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. Unless the king specifically orders it, you cannot touch me. Imperial law. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of Vinganza Media Incorporated and may not be used without the expressed written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. What manner of vengeance are you enjoying, farmer? The vengeance of a father? The vengeance of a husband? 
for the vengeance of a king. Now playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2020. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. For king! For country! Keep in mind, the first time I ever saw Matthew Lillard, he was playing serial killer in Hackers. And that has forever... And Scream? Yeah. Scream. You said Hackers. No. He was playing serial killer. Not a serial killer. He was playing a character named Serial oh, Killer. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. All right. <laughs> Too deep. Serial. C-E-R-E-A-L. Okay. Um, <laughs> oh, you didn't watch his old skateboarding tapes before then? No. <laughs> are, those, uh, are those right there with Vin Diesel trying to sell me the Mad Balls? But... <laughs> I do feel bad, though, that King Conreed did go to the magical land of Florida to divorce the queen, where the divorce lawyers are all in favor of the man, and then he returned to the kingdom of Ebb. What? Are you talking about Lonnie Anderson? Yeah, he moved He moved Lonnie Anderson to Florida. <laughs> like, let's go to move to Florida. Then he divorced her immediately, but now that they were residents of Florida, he got to keep all the money. <laughs> oh, okay. It's, an, it's a no-contest divorce state. Yeah. Good God. I mean, yeah, it's, it's strange that he's the king. It's strange that he. it's all about him 